In my day job, I get to see some incredible CVs. And today's 40-minute mentor, James McClure, certainly has one of those. After eight successful years at Google, James joined what was at the time a little-known travel tech business called Airbnb to lead their business in the UK and Northern Europe. Over three and a half years, he had significant successes growing the business here in Europe, as well as having to overcome a fair few challenges. Following this, he spent some time at SeatGeek as their international GM before taking up the role as CCO at the search engine Adzuna, right at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. He's clearly not one to shy away from a challenge. In this episode, James and I talk through his career highlights and lessons learned, including how he built a successful career at Google and the lessons he's taken forward in all his roles since, his experience of working for a US headquarters business like Google and Airbnb, and how you can ensure you still stand out even if you're on the other side of the world. Plus, how he's dealt with starting a new exec role in the middle of a global pandemic, and how he's helped the team adapt to the new normal. It was an absolute pleasure talking to James, who has had such an impressive career to date. And despite him holding some very senior roles for some of the most aspirational tech scale-ups that have ever existed, he has remained incredibly down-to-earth, and I really enjoyed hearing about his varied experiences. James provides a fascinating window into the workings of tech scale-ups and shares some great advice for anyone looking to follow in his footsteps. So with all that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with the fantastic James McClure. James, welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. Thank you so much for being our guest today. I thought we could kick this off as we always like to uh, on the podcast with a 30 second overview of your CV, if that's all right. Gordon, thanks very much for, for having me on, James. Uh, at least no one has to worry about whose name it is. We, we won't call anyone by the wrong one. <laughs> it's a great anyway, name. Yeah. The top line, it's some tech exec, mainly working in like multinational companies, very much on like the commercial side, but starting on from a more like consultancy analytical so short time in consultancy eight years at google running their like emerging markets business in south and southeast asia for the last four years of that moved back to the uk four years at airbnb 2014 to 18 running their uk northern europe business moved to SeatGeek, a ticketing marketplace to run their international and b2b side and i started about six weeks ago at adzuna which is a job search engine as their chief commercial officer Fantastic. And, and I'm pretty sure that was as close to 30 seconds as anyone's got. So <laughs> very well done. You've had an amazing career, James, and have worked for some of the most exciting brands there are. I guess I'd love to just understand a bit about the origins, really. So you started in, in consulting, which you know a lot of tech execs do. Was there a particular reason for you at the time to, to go down that route? And what sort of skills did you develop in that early part of your career? I'd love to claim there was like a grand plan, but the reality was that after graduating, I took a year off and travel around the world with a couple of friends. And it's amazing what difference it makes just one flight home from being you know, on very tight budget, but you know, out exploring, enjoying things. And then one flight home later, you're an unemployed loser living with your parents at <laughs> age, whatever, 22, 23. So that was a, let's work out how to get some money to start paying off more of the student debt and to get to, get to London and moved there. So I applied to a bunch of different like grad kind of things. And I was always aiming for something which was maybe not the most traditional thing you might do the math degree of like investment banking or accountancy or whatever, but ended up the consultancy was the first thing that came through. And so I ended up in a one end by, and again, the consultancy was mainly focused on like oil and gas and transport. There was a start an early kind of bit around tech and I just ended up through no I think through being a, what my availability was in my first month meant I got staffed on some projects so there's there's lots of luck that happens in many people's careers but I think mine was pretty high on high on that I think what consultancy did give is and particularly maybe like a smaller consultancy with at an earlier stage was I got exposure to a lot of business type things that I shouldn't really have been whether it was doing a lot of like the, the modeling for M&A work. And although in the meetings, I was always expressly told not to say anything because I was the Excel gimp. If they actually had a question, they needed me in there. So I got to like hear quite a bit of like senior stuff that you wouldn't normally. Plus, yeah. I think just the pace of being able to do some 
how to communicate through slides, Excel models, how to do some of the financial ones. Those are quite like, those are pretty hard skills, meaning like the hard versus soft skills that can reset you up for a lot of things. So I got a lot out of it, but it was certainly far from a grand plan. Got it. No, that's, that's really interesting. And I think a lot of people do get that almost like corporate education, that consulting skill set that you get in the early, early parts. And a lot of it is, you know, not the most glamorous Excel type work, pulling together PowerPoints, but it does stand you in good stead. And you obviously see moved um, after a, a year or two to Google. And, you know, I'm sure you can imagine lots of people listening to this, lots of people I know have, have you know, would have dreamed of working for a company like Google. But there is this kind of mystique that surrounds the hiring process. So how did you end up there? And what did you, how did you find that recruitment process? It was just an application at the time. And again, you know, you just, they were recruiting heavily. So it meant that someone with a relatively limited amount of experience was able to, to get in. And it was for a like a financial analyst role for Eastern Europe, Middle East and Africa. And a large amount of the consultancy projects I'd been doing were like Turkey, Jordan, Serbia. So there was a like past at least an initial CV test of like university degree, numerate, vaguely relevant experience. But then the process was, there were some bits which probably fit the stereotype and there were some bits that weren't. I think the bits that fit the stereotype, which I remember vividly to this day, was being asked like a very analytical case study about effectively like what would be the optimal ratio of price discount to delivery delay if you were running a pizza delivery firm to try and maximize your like maximize your your profits but giving someone the ability that it it would be free if it was a certain amount of late and this was one where ended up sort of and I started to, my initial answer was talking about it in more conceptual terms. And the guy who was running, who was like senior director was like, no, no, we're going to do this. And so wow. I sort of, then it's like into writing inequalities and drawing out estimated curves. Um, wow. <laughs> I, after after uh, that one. You clearly answered it well. So. Well, no, that, that's, the, that's the thing. Like, I, I actually didn't. I, I, was, I, really... I went after it for like 10 minutes and the, only after I got hired, I spoke to the guy and went, but I completely like bombed that thing. I couldn't get anywhere near the answer. I couldn't get the stuff to work. I was onto like two sides of working. And he went, well, what you did was you, you got an inequality, you know, like a greater than or less than the wrong way around on like your second line. And after that, you were never going to do it by just let you go to see how a mixture of like bloody minded you, you were or whether you could actually get yourself out of a hole. And I think, well, I didn't get myself out of the hole, but I proved I was maybe bloody minded. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, that's really interesting. So how many interviews was it at the time? And did you, were there elements that you, you, you found easier than, than that sort of case study? Because that's a pretty tough one. Yeah, yeah, that, that was, uh, I think it was probably five or six. So it wasn't, it wasn't sort of insane. I think it's the benefit of, certainly from the, the time there, that's on the lower end, but it's kind of, normal for a pretty junior role i mean i was like I was 24 at the time so the ones when it starts to really spin out is when it's a senior manager director role particularly when there's lots of candidates and you know as you'll know better than anyone else when you're hiring senior roles often it's not who's better than who it's what flavor of candidate do you actually want to fill that role when it's a, a bit more of a grunt to turn some handles on excel <laughs> You can you can make, probably make yeah. a few quicker moves. Um, yeah, fair enough. Other bits on the interviews were more of the, yeah, more of that. I think like the culture side was probably what I hadn't really prepared for as much. And I think it's, some of it's a bit of a. Those are the ones where, in some ways, in interviews, is do you click with the person or not? And I think I was fortunate that the guy that ended up being my boss, we actually sort of just you know, when in an interview, just sort of get on with someone regardless of the questions. I think mm-hmm. there's some of those bits which are hard to. Yeah, they're hard to replicate, but they certainly ease your, um, ease your way through. Yeah, definitely. And what was it that appealed about moving into tech at the time? Was, that, was it a grand plan always? Because consulting, I guess, you almost stumbled into. But Google, how big was it at the time? And, and was that sort of a very much a planned move? I mean, it was, in London, it would be 250, 300 people. So it's pretty, oh, wow. pretty sizable. I think certainly the tech internet side was, they were the areas that I'd been interested in and done quite a lot of work in the consulting on. 
So where there's like uh, some of the early like VOD, so I guess like the almost precursors to Netflix when BT, you know, before, before BT Sport was actually, I think they had a slightly failed BT Vision attempt. So I worked on some of the stuff with that and consulting. So I think that those bits were what I was excited about and enjoying. And if you compare it to now, there's, there's far less of a UK homegrown scene. And there wasn't, there wasn't so much of the, hey, look, you could try and take a real punt on Series B. What does this look like? You kind of, you almost had to go, corporate tech obviously it was much smaller yeah. and stuff at the time but the variety of options that existed mm. was kind of google yahoo ebay amazon obviously there's many other smaller ones but it was yeah. a much narrower set of things to get into plus it was also at the time when you'd have the for, the more social cachet of oh google that's really cool you know whereas if you say to people you work at insert large big tech company now they'll often be hey look, i love the products but what about your tax or what about your yeah. employment conditions or what about your X, Y, and Z? So there's, there's probably like more of like the social cachet yeah. than there is now. And the, and the amazing free lunches you, you would get were, were very novel at the time. Now it's kind of uh, a pretty standard thing for most uh, startups and scale-ups. But I remember going to visit a friend there and uh, just being blown away by having sushi on tap and things like that. It's quite incredible. Well, you, you spent an amazing uh, eight years at Google and, and worked across London, Sydney, Singapore. For our listeners, can you tell uh, us a little bit about, I guess, what were the, what were the highlights for you and, and, and also some of the maybe some of the challenges that you had to overcome in your time? I think so the things which I've really enjoyed throughout the careers have been about how do you grow something which is not necessarily like 100% new, but how do you really like take something from the small incubation to something larger and being involved in a lot of office launches in the like London role from being the PowerPoint Excel guy trying to prove, hey, look, here's how much money we can make in South Africa. This is a good idea for all these reasons. But then particularly in the Singapore role of being sort of the, the project manager and then interim, interim everything for places like Indonesia, Thailand, um, Pakistan to be looking to open offices, launch YouTube. I think those bits of just, I guess, the real test for yourself, but with, and then with almost being like the greatest safety net known to man is, all right, you're working for Google, so you can get any meeting you want. And if there's some really complicated question about Indonesian tax law that you need to find out, like you can just pump it over to a legal team and they'll get some expert advice. Yeah. So there's, there's huge like benefits to it. But I think the excitement really came from those, it's almost like the pre-office days when it would be probably like, we normally look to hire like a local consultant. It'd be me and them driving around in either a taxi or their like SUV. And in the morning you'd be looking at office space at lunch. You might be meeting a, TV stations try and get their content on YouTube. In the evening, you'd be doing some interviews for a potential country manager, and then you'd be trying to meet some, like, I know, the Garuda an airline or a Unilever about some advertising stuff. Just the raw, like, variety of that, plus, plus also just you know, being an outsider and just learning how all the different bits fit together and just testing yourself in different markets. I think mean, those are just the real memories. Yeah. So if I think back to the time, it's the yeah, it's kind of like the pre-office or three people in an office times rather than the, you know, okay, we've now reached X million revenue or we've opened nice flashy office with a cafe. It's disproportionately <laughs> the kind of the scrappy. It's the scrappier. Yeah, yeah. I love that. The really entrepreneurial. I guess it's, it's nice to be launching things, but having the safety net of that bigger brand. And and exactly. I mean, that's where you get spoiled. Yes, yeah. No, that's it's it's amazing, and, and and you clearly had huge success there. What on the flip side? What were the what were the most difficult bits in in those kind of eight years at Google? I think a lot of it was getting attention, and particularly like sort of engineering attention, and that would be true of you know, most global companies with centralized engineering, which is like the right way to do it. Maybe maybe some bits of decentralization, but in location, but like centralized ownership of product and engineering is nearly uniquely the better way to go. But often when you're trying to uh, talk about tomorrow's opportunity or probably more realistically, like the day after tomorrow's opportunity, it's, you often get caught in that web of what do you need to sell the, to, to prove the potential for the dream, to sell the dream further, to get the stuff and that, that, that virtuous, virtuous cycle. So I think those are the, often the challenges. And you can, particularly like emerging markets, you can do a good job of 
getting some interest in playing the, you know, did you know there's whatever 300, there's more people in Indonesia than US and Canada combined and all, and taught, telling a growth story, but still it's often, but also you know your place that mm. they look like. I can't argue against the potential of a hundred million uplift here, like the amount of money that the markets I was working on made would have got spent on like the Christmas parties across Google in a given <laughs> yeah. year, quite, quite possibly. So I think that's where you've got a, the mix of knowing when to try and pop your head above, above the surface, but then also when you do try to tell a pretty consistent story, so almost like never wasting the time in the limelight. Like when you've got a senior exec to visit, you wanted to make sure you really hit the, the things that you were trying to prove and give them actually often one of my sort of tips around like these ones is often throw in a couple if you've got like your ceo or senior exec or something visiting a remote part give them a bit of an at least one nasty meeting or experience where they realize that things aren't quite that easy it's yeah there's definitely great advice, because, yeah. You know, because because you're you take a lot of pride in it it's often your 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 market or your territory or your whatever's chance to shine but if you make it 100% airbrushed and they go, next time you ask, they go, well, no, don't seem right to me. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, just go on. No, it's great. Just, I, yeah, great, great tip. Great tip for anyone, anyone listening. Yeah, that's, that may be launching a new uh, business. <laughs> but it's a reality yeah, check, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. No, definitely. Well, you've, you've obviously worked in different locations and it's not always easy kind of upping sticks and, 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 and going to totally different geographies and, and, and launching businesses. I'm sure it's, uh, you alluded to it. some of the challenges with it is often yeah, it's very exciting, but uh, certainly hard work. What do you feel were some of the skills that you learned from kind of working in these different geographies and territories? And, uh, and what, what were some of the learnings that you probably wouldn't have had if you'd have just stuck in HQ or in London, just, just in the normal uh, big hub offices? Well, this is like it's adaptability, which is a bit of a weak term, but maybe it's almost like phlegmaticness that particularly in some of the emerging markets or if you're in an early stage, you could walk into a meeting and quite a lot of different things could happen. Whereas when you're in certainly the combination of an established company and an established market, you know, like even at the time, if you were running, say you were like the head of sales for travel for Google or Facebook, certainly now, but at any, really any time, you're probably not going to have that many surprising meetings. So you can talk to Expedia, you can talk to British Airways, it'll be different flavors, but it's in, a, in that bit. But even from how bits of different agencies worked on the media buying, where there's some like very entrenched markets to break into, either through corporate ties or just kind of old boy networks or everything else. I think the being able to be unsurprised by as many things as possible was certainly a skill that can only get developed. I think it's quite, um, it's quite a hard one to do, but then it also works well in some of like the media type interviews. I think the other actual just like challenge and something is a, particularly when you're work when you're working somewhere that's not your native language is particularly as someone who loves a good analogy to try and get a point across. I learned pretty quickly, particularly with the team that I was managing who were, all like Vietnamese, Pakistani, Indonesian, that I had to both be like just practically clearer and talk slower in English, but mm. actually you have to keep often communicate in a slightly different way. Plus then the value of, and again, this is much more of being the in an emerging market as someone from UK, US, Australia, France, Germany, or whatever, that how you can differentiate yourself from just all the other expats who roll in and assume it's like and try and do business like it's yeah. the US or the UK. I think that's also a little bit of a art. Mm. It takes a while to do. So first of all, you have to stick around long enough to build up some relationships. Trying to assimilate. Yeah, it's, it kind of really, yeah, I totally understand that. Um, I totally understand. Okay, that's it's, it's great advice. I mean, you spent a long time there and, and I guess you, you, you mentioned that it was sort of 250 when you joined, which is relatively small compared to now but but um i guess it would have been a very different beast from when you started to when you left and then you know in, in the last six years it's you know grown even more i'm interested to know would you 
if you were graduating now, would you would you go and work at Google? And and for anyone that's listening that might be interested in applying to them now, what would be your tips for them? I certainly would recommend it as a, as an employer, both in just that they take extremely good care of people. It's a company that is going to continue to grow, and I think like for any early stage, I think picking growth of a industry or company is going to be one of the best indicators of your ability to grow alongside it. And so there's certainly a large amount of growth for Google, Amazon, et cetera, to come in. So even just by being you know, comfortably above average in whatever group, you're going to have more opportunities than being comfortably above average in a more static or declining business. So I think choosing growth is always something I'd go with. And then I also feel that in careers, I think you want to have a blend of different experiences. And I think I can see the benefit of a good, like whether you call it corporate or businessy section of your early career and i got a good amount of that in consulting where you just get it's a bunch of stuff that you just learn how decent things are done and there's a bunch of like skills in that and i certainly think google would provide a huge amount of that for the first x years of your career you get to learn how to run stuff etc i think the other thing that i'd be and again this is all mobilized like my style as much as anything else but i think the things that i got great amount of benefit from the google experience at the time i was there but also in the kind of always disproportionately in the early stage stuff was being pretty junior, but being in the room when biggish stuff happens, or at least like, so seeing how, basically seeing how like power moves are made. And even if you're not claiming you know, you're, you're in the management meetings or anything as the 24 year old guy, but you know, if you're involved in some of the preparations of it, you see how someone's, how the, your kind of regional directors trying to position South Africa to the CEO, even if you're just, creating a few slides for it. Mm. I think that getting to see how some of those games are played early in your career is also really beneficial. And that would be, that would be on that, I guess, the case against Google that yeah. early because you're, unless you're able to find a very specific role, you're probably going to be much more in the, you know, there's, there's like five people like me doing something a bit similar yeah. and you'll get a good grounding in that, but you probably won't get to see as much of the, you know, executive cut and thrust as you could do somewhere else yeah yeah totally i think we 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 will often advise candidates or or when i'm running executive searches now somebody with that combination of uh, corporate grounding or or work in a experience in a bigger tech environment that's then gone on to a you know more hands-on scrappy environment and has some tangible stories to tell about what they've actually delivered and executed for me, they'll always be almost the stronger profiles when you've got that combination. And it totally see how you've kind of, you know, it's interesting to see how you've made that transition. I guess I want to come on to talk a bit about that sort of life post Google. So you, you returned from Sydney to the UK and joined Airbnb. So another, you know, I know it's having a challenging time at the moment, given the the, the coronavirus uh, pandemic we're in, but, but an amazing business. Uh, what was it sort of, again, what sort of size was it when you joined and, and what was it like for you transitioning out of Google, the beast that is Google, to a, albeit very recognizable and, and, and well-respected brand, but, but a smaller high growth tech company? I mean, this was, yeah, it would be like 12 people in the UK. So like a very wow, different amazing. size and probably globally, maybe a thousand, but okay. like, so it's, it was definitely in that stage and even just moving to be, it was, uh, hosting was, was illegal in London at the time I started. That was like the first thing we were, we were trying to do is to mean that you, obviously people were doing it, but it was by the absolute letter of the law at the time, it was in breach of two overlapping regulations, I probably would have said in my, my press interviews at the time rather than mm-hmm. um, like directly legal. But yes, yeah, so I think the, the things that I noticed immediately from starting were I think one of like similarities of that culture is the easy thing to say, but I think the, the real like drive and belief behind what was being done by, I'm not going to claim 100%, but near enough 100% of people that there's travel is an important thing. There's hotels have their place, but there's just a different way to go about it. And actually, like we, we live in homes, so and spend a lot of time, money, and effort making them nice. So it's not that weird to think, well, we'd stay in a home when we go on holiday. Like it's some of, and and then obviously some of the more cash benefits and be able to show someone around your local area and give them your tips and your version of London or Edinburgh or Dublin. I think those bits were sort of held pretty similar. Yeah. And 
that like that, that that kind of cohesiveness I think is a really important part of an early stage in banding together. And then things that I also sort of reflected on was from having spent eight years somewhere that it was immediately then you realize when you're in somewhere for a reasonable amount of time, what you don't realize is you're able to get a whole bunch of stuff done because you just sort of know how the place works, either through the kind of the direct net internal networks you have, or just, you know, like I've seen this play out a couple of times. I know how to try and approach X, Y, and Z. When you're in the new bit, the new company, that, that's a real like learning curve wherever you join. And that that's something that, and again, in the, in the spirit of what tips I'd have for someone who's joining a remote as a sort of a leader of a remote office is get your backside over to wherever headquarters is for mm-hmm. a, a good like minimum two weeks and just work out who's who walk around, try and work out who may either, either through like nationality or other stuff could be people in an engineering or product team who may be not that senior, but could be quite influential as well as trying to at least just get your, not you personally, but like that you as the representative of whatever it is that you're the representative of that at least people know your name and face that when you come asking about something later on, they at least can go, all right, you know, didn't seem yeah. like a complete knob. All right, let's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's important. <laughs> no, that's it's it's really interesting. Given how small it was in the UK when you when you decided to make the move, had you drunk the Kool Aid? Like, was it just like obvious to you that this was going to be the rocket ship that it became? And I, I, I tell us a bit about the thought process of of, of going for that role and when, and when and those sort of early days at Airbnb. I think the I mean moving back to the UK was probably the. That was the initial like. That, that's what I was looking to be able to do at that at that stage. But then of the thought of going to the Google equivalent sort of role, which would be you know the I'm gonna go and speak to British Airways and then to Expedia, great role, but just wasn't the challenge that I wanted to to give myself. So, and I'd been a relative, and I'm not claiming like an early early user of Airbnb, but from sort of 2012, maybe 11 ish, had been a guest on one side, but also had sort of hosted a couple of times in there. So I knew some, some of the kind of community around that. And then when it's an early stage, you got to know some people. So I was probably as Kool-Aid as a maybe cynical English guy can, can get on it. So <laughs> I, I think on the, the thought process was, I mean, basically it was that it was going to blow up, but I didn't know whether it was like an explode or an implode. Okay, then, yeah. from, from meeting the, especially once you got into the process of meeting people, it was, it wasn't going to be an average sort of, all right, well, this is kind of popular and, un- and but like niche, but nothing else that it was clear that it was yeah, either going to, well, as it prior to COVID probably broadly has done of like a large success, albeit with large amounts of controversy, or it would have gone in the, not like, not we work for the reasons that we work did, but just to have mm. burnt out and faded away, whether through, if a whole, a whole bunch of regulations or, and if we played things differently, if they'd gone against us and got like made illegal and strictly in a whole bunch of places or if yeah. the different bits of growth hadn't worked out. So I think it was the, yeah, there was, I mean, it's certainly not like, not a claim it's the biggest gamble when it's well-established and everything else. It's not like going to start your own business and things like that. But I was pretty confident there wasn't, there wasn't yeah. really like um, a 50% outcome. Yeah, or, yeah, fair enough. The likelihood of the fifty percent outcome was pretty low. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. It'll be so somewhere you, wise. Yeah, no, that 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 that's fair. I, I mean, you so you joined to lead the UK, Ireland, Netherlands, and Nordics. Is that right? So, and it's safe to say that was a it was a very successful period. What for you made made it such a great place to work? And can you just tell our listeners a little bit about kind of what the the sort of highlights were in that in that period? I think the one of the things that I like. I personally really enjoyed was that you really were doing something new because it's like, yes, accommodation is not new in the scientists doing experiences like tours and activities, not, not new, but in the, that this was something which was almost like a new way of doing something old. So it touched on housing, travel, all these things, which are as largely as old as, as like, you know, they're not the oldest profession, but they're kind of, they're, they're in that sort of, um, in that vein, but, actually the complexity of how do you work through both the psychological bits of staying in someone else's home or hosting someone else in your home, the legal bits of, well, 
housing's got quite a lot of regulation, rightly so, because it's been around for so long and there's lots of important things. And then almost the, let's call it the customer service or the experience element of why travel is so important to so many people. The intersection of that meant there was a real cocktail of genuine, like not knowing quite how it's all going to go, but feeling that we had a, a really strong direction and that we were sort of, you know, navigating between a way, but with a really firm view of how things were going to go around. And I think that like unity of what to do amongst the company was, was like really, particularly at the, at the times I was there, it was really quite uncommon and cohesive. And I think well, certainly there were like, you know, functional differences. And when you've got things like the business side and then the public policy side, so, you know, you want to make some money from people staying somewhere on the policy side and your PR you don't want bad headlines of lots of people yeah. staying in Amsterdam. But I think we were surprisingly aligned on what we were aiming to do and probably more so than other functions I've worked in for less controversial stuff. Mm. So I think that was mm. one of things that made it special was that like real pretty similar views as to what overall success looked like. It was more just to get from here to here. Do you go like across first and up or do you go up and then across? Yeah, yeah fair enough. And it certainly sounds like from everything I've heard, it's very much a mission-driven business where, you you know, on the whole, everyone is very bought into that and, and goes on that journey um, aligned to the vision. So it sounds like a, an amazing experience. You alluded to it earlier, and I know SeatGeek was the same, but you've worked for you've worked for big US headquartered businesses throughout your career. And you already mentioned making sure you get to the HQ to kind of uh, meet people face to face and get a lay of the land. But what for anyone else that's listening, and we, we work with a lot of GMs and country managers, for anyone that's listening, what advice would you have for those who are, who are doing a similar sort of role at the moment, that maybe the, the mothership is in a different location and they're tasked with launching something, growing something over here? What, what advice, advice would you have from your experience of successfully doing that? So there's a, there's a, there's a few elements. So there's one of, and this goes for any, like almost any employees, like understanding the company strategy and what your role is in it. And so particularly in, and I think this would be like, okay, if I give the contrast of what it meant to be Indonesia for Google or the UK for Airbnb, like Indonesia for Google would be about, forget the market, like the country or what you need to do there. It's loads of people, not much, in, like relatively low internet penetration in 2010. Advertising is heavily, it, the, we've got user growth. You're going to get more queries, more YouTube videos, if we do some sensible stuff and there's money to come if we've got the users. So you're telling a future growth story for something like the UK and Airbnb. You can tell growth, but that's only because everything's growing. What we were able to, I think at least represent was we could provide a lot of good things for other countries to emulate and point to, particularly on things like the policy and PR side that we were fortunate enough to be Certainly, you know, far from free from controversy, but we were able to make some good moves and the way in which the governments of the time making you know, political belief stuff were, the Cameron administration was fairly like pro-tech and growth on those things mm -hmm. that what we could do would be obviously to deliver like our numbers and be a healthy percentage of the business, but also we could provide some real like case studies of a globally renowned city like London. Here's what's happening there that could help, that could help elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So the one is like knowing for when you're speaking to the CEO, CFO, whoever, that maybe you've got different flavors of, but you're always able to answer the, first of all, like the why do I care question. And then your other, the other main advice would be is to aim to be as consistent as you can in what your storyline and then underneath that, what you're trying to get always is. And if you, I've certainly seen it fail where, if you're the head of a particular country and you're kind of on one quarterly business review, you might have with whoever senior you're asking for, like you're saying you've got this problem and I want this thing. And then the next time it's a slightly different problem and a different thing. Sometimes that, that is the case. You can't change what reality yeah. is. You've got to propose what's best, but aiming to have a consistency of where you think it's going and be able to have a consistency of what your story is and what you're asking for people is really important and then the other one would be for is working out where as a particularly just like countries or regions who else has got something pretty similar as a challenge to you that you can almost just try and bulk by because it's one thing to say indonesia needs it or the uk needs it if you go 
well, actually, this is an EU thing. That's why we're asking for product change. To I mean, GDPR is the sort of a trivial one because it was a legal bit. But if you you could imagine one where if you if you try and band it under a here's what we need to do to be successful in Europe versus a here's what that guy from Germany wants or here's what the lady from yeah, Spain yeah. wants. Thing like that, that clubbing together and working out where there's similarities to mean that you can just help people prioritize. And that's also, it works kind of selfishly for you, but genuinely that's the best thing for the business because they're able to see yeah. similarities and where they can try and address bigger problems in, in a couple of goes. No, that's, that's really, really good advice. I'm conscious of time, Jason. I want to make sure we talk a bit about your, your latest role at Adzuna. So you joined the CCO uh, recently. For those of our listeners that don't know what Adzuna does, can you just bring that to life for us and, and tell us a little bit about what you've been brought in to do? So Adzuna is a job search engine, so it's connecting job seekers on one side to employers who are ideally advertising because that's where the money comes from, but it's looking to connect job seekers to jobs two-sided marketplace just that the it's like the business model is not is on an advertising like match rather than like the transaction marketplace like a like an airbnb so then on the sort of cco i'm looking after the sort of sales account management so the advertiser side but then also the marketing brand performance etc and how we get and how we provide like good service to job seekers and help to get them like the clearest view of what a good role is and i think i mean in any times that's you know, your profession is one of the most important things to you, both just straight up bank account and how you live your life, but also it provides a lot of identity to people. So it's a really important social bit as well as everything else. But in times like this, then, yeah, I mean, there's certainly a large amount of demand. Um, supply is maybe not quite as, quite as heavy, but how you can actually help people to find what is out there, but also to help maybe sort of suggest things that, aren't quite what they may have considered but you know we've got tools like sort of value my cv where we can give you a bit of a an idea of well based on your experience from uploading your cv if you so choose we reckon what you're looking for could be about 35 grand or 45 grand so mm-hmm. it's trying to give some tools to people to help them in their search as well as almost more like the spotify style of you know you've been listening to this have you thought about why yeah. then you know if you're if you've been looking at sort of chef type roles, then there's hey look, there's plenty of other things in the restauranty type space that could be useful. So it's really trying to bring a lot of those tools, as well as getting just good quality applicants to end employers. Yeah, that's great. Is it, and I, and I know it's you've raised you know, significant funds and and have have a great reputation and. Uh, the fact that you've come on board for me is is, is clearly a great sign of uh, ambition and an exciting growth journey ahead. I really like the the point about actually, you know, in a time like this, tech businesses that are able to actually, you know, really help individuals and 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 add more value than just giving you know options in terms of jobs. And I think that's where the recruitment industry and the headhunting profession that I'm in has a really important role to play in this difficult time. And I think I've found, even though our pipeline's taken a massive hit in the last month, as you'd expect, you can really still add huge value, even if it's just being on the end of the phone, you know, giving some advice, coaching when it comes to CV or providing a bit of mentorship. So yeah, I think I think the companies that that do go the extra mile, that will be remembered when life gets back to normal. So you didn't necessarily anticipate COVID-19, James. Um, so I can imagine it's been a challenging sort of first six weeks in the job. How, how is it going for you and, and how's the company sort of coping in, in this kind of uncertain time? And so I had uh, one week in the office and then it's been uh, sort of shut down like, apart wow. from that. So I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for the one week of just going around shaking some hands and, and talking to people. But I think we've, to be like, credit to the rest of the leadership team, we adapted pretty quickly to it and moved faster than some of the government advice but also did a lot of really like heavy quick work to try and make sure a sorting out if if everyone had a wi-fi connection that was stable if people needed like headphones keyboards etc to mean that we were people were able to be set up so we've got a wide range of people from people with four kids who are trying to work out how on earth to do any childcare with their with a partner to so someone who's recently moved to the UK from another country and is living in a shared house with not a huge amount of space. So we've got a real range of bits and I think it's trying to give a lot of the tools and support just to mean in that first few days, how can we best 
fit work around what you're trying to do and do you have the kit that you need to be effective plus then just doing a lot of things to try and get the social side to work like we do start off doing daily now we're doing like sort of twice a week it's kind of like coffee chats where you effectively just sign up randomly get assigned to a group and you'll just you know like find the 15 minutes great idea grab a coffee and have a chat and that's actually been a great way for me to meet a few different people around the business that i wouldn't have otherwise like we've got a remote engineering team for example a lot, lot, lot of them work from home or elsewhere so i wouldn't have met them anyway in the office so i think there's a lot of those which are helpful and i think the other bit is the clear direction as to who you are as a business and what does this represent to you and that we've got the benefit that we haven't had to be in in the challenging position like many other people of having to go down furlough redundancies route so you know that's testament to the the previous management of, of pre-covid stuff as to how to as to, mm. how to go through mm. but with that then you can really be really focused on like what's the way to weather through the storm but actually come out of it stronger yeah from, you know, working at google during the 2008 financial crisis that although i think even like google at the time the revenue sort of i think it may have even dropped year on year one year but coming out of it like the share of advertising was far higher because people started to question the two-page banner like two-page print ad they were putting in the guardian not picking on the guardian but like the versus so more performance based i think we'll see similar trends in our industry so it's how can you be focused on what your long-term strategy is if you feel that that's the still the right one to go after and we do but then also how can you play the tactical game and realizing here's what are the product things we need to do so for example we've launched a, a very like simplistic filter of how we like we call it like furlong tiers. So if you've been furloughed but you're looking to volunteer for you're interested to volunteer for another startup, just a very basic, almost like matching bit where people can see can see those ones. So trying to adapt to like that or adding greater filters for like remote work on the site. Like those are things that we wouldn't have done normally. But if you can execute pretty quickly, you can actually A provide something that's genuinely useful, but also show like you said that you're actually reacting not just positively for your business, but positively for your customers during this time. One of the reasons we love working with startups and scale-ups and being a startup ourselves is the ability to change and to act, you know, to, to pivot where it needs be and, and, and add new features and products, et cetera, and, and get them to market quickly. And I think those that are able to do that fast, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll come out of it stronger. I guess this all the way you and and the company have adapted to what is a very challenging situation certainly suggests very strong leadership and i think that's that's something i just wanted to touch upon before before we ended you've led different functions different sized teams in all different types of countries as well for anyone that's listening and we have lots of kind of founders and sort of leaders that will um business owners that that will be listening into this what's your kind of main advice or um sort of suggestion from from your experience of of leading high performing teams what are the the main takeaways or tips that you've taken from your experience thus far i feel like there's actually like the diversity side and and i'm deliberately not going to talk about it in it's like classic sense but actually in as a leadership team, how do you have a different range of like personalities, experiences, views? And then the art is like the leader of that is to try and mean that you get the benefits of, of that versus the like sort of friction bits of it, or at least that you manage the friction that's a d- disagree and commit. So I think that is a really important bit that you've got. You're able to get both the strong input from your teams as to what the direction sort of should be you're able to have the open space where you get a bunch of different views and you're able to like go through it. But then when you've got an old boss, someone used to talk about like the sort of the cabinet mentality, maybe that's um, less true of more recent cabinets, but maybe a few years ago is there that for that group, like you basically can say anything within, uh, within reason in the room and when you're going through those bits. But once we've made the decision as to how we're going to go, when you're out of the room, no one should be able to tell the difference between like the biggest proponent of idea X or the biggest detractor of idea X. Great, great. No, that's really, that's, that's really interesting. And um, easy to say, uh, hard to do. But yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> it's, it's, I think there'll be people listening that will, will be very keen to, uh, to roll that out, but it probably takes a bit of time. <laughs> I love to say I even had more than maybe a 50% success rate. So like there's, you, you learn by doing, I think, but if yeah. you've got, if you can try and set out how you set the expectations of what you want to see and how you want to do it, and then modeling a lot yourself, mm. that brings out, but then also it's, 
I mean, as you all know, but anyone says like smart hiring, not just in can they do the job, but like how are they going to play and be additive to your overall team and whether that's at like sea level or in a like in a smaller, more junior team, I think the principles are the same. Yeah. And it speaks to that sort of collaborative leadership style, which ultimately, in my opinion, is the most successful. And I think the types of the talented future leaders that we work with, that we, you know, when they're looking at companies joining, often they have lots of options. It tends to be those that inspire them, you know, that maybe have strong opinions and, you know, will ultimately call the shots, but will empower individuals to have opinions and will, you know, uh, take other viewpoints. You obviously have your exec role at Adzuna. We have a, uh, a shared friend in, in Tom who you're a board member to his business under current news. You're an executive coach, I know. You have lots of different hats alongside family life and various others. How do you manage your time? How do you divide it between all these different commitments? And when do you get to have fun? And what does fun look like for you? I think like, you know, um, work-life balance comes in a whole bunch of different different flavors. I think for me, I try and I actually try and do more segments rather than I know other people who it works very well for them to blend and that they'll be as happy kind of doing some work at like 1am on a Saturday because they've just had a really good idea and they want to get it down and they want to like do that versus I aim to have a bit of regularity to say on average it's a eight till six ish kind of thing and if I try and do like four bits of exercise a week if I can. Maybe like in pre-COVID times, gym before work, I think currently it's more maybe like an even, I think this, the, later on this evening, I aim for a, a cheeky run. And then, then obviously, then you've been, just, especially when it comes to like family type sides, I think for me, it just helps to be a bit more predictable. So I know like I can be yeah. a bit more confident. So obviously, you know, things happen and you have to change plans, but aiming for regularity is the is the best way to to manage it i think then in terms of what like fun looks like certainly as some bits of the career may suggest like travel has always been a passion i'm really feeling the uh, pain of that at the moment what my wife would tell you and i say to do is almost um like map related jigsaws is is, oh, wow. is, is something that like i'm not gonna claim that's a hobby uh, because <laughs> we've done one we're just about to, to finish it but maybe just trying to exercise it in that sense. So again, like things which I can't really do now of like being a sports fan, or at least it's hard to watch like live football or cricket, but then music's uh, a large passion. Um, and I've been, maybe in my midlife crisis, I've been attempting to learn to DJ probably 25 nice. years after I, sh- I should have done. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, uh, depending on how long this goes on for, maybe we'll have to set up uh, a little DJ, remote DJ set. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> no, that's great. And it's so important. I think um, we always like to lift a little bit on, on our 40-minute mentors' lives because it is there's more to us all than work. And I think in this time, it is great to hear a little bit about, you know, the person behind the CV. Awesome, James. Well, we are at the end here and I always like to wrap up with a couple of sort of quick final questions Uh, the first one has to be about mentorship so do you have a mentor yourself how has mentorship sort of helped you in your career they've been really lucky to have like may have a lot of great people through just being like my manager and being good places at good times being just met a lot of good people so they've definitely got like a couple of people that are my real like go-tos when it's career advice evaluating new opportunities I think the other thing which I often think about is like the difference between mentorship and coaching. And there's, and then, you know, there's sure there's more artful definitions, but like the mentorship is when you actually, when you want a real opinion from someone, but in the more coaching, sometimes you actually just want someone to be able to talk to, to try and help you through to come to a solution on a problem. And sometimes I, like I talk to the same people and on like one or other of the, the layers, but I think, often mentorship can be confused for coaching where mm. sometimes it's you probably have the answer somewhere you just need a bit of help teasing it out whereas yeah. there's some stuff where it's like could really just i'm in this kind of situation i've really never seen something before can you give me a bit of guidance to go and think about so i think like mm-hmm. i'd be careful of and definitely think about who you want to talk to in different scenarios and not even the same person like what are you asking of them? Is it someone to help me try and find an answer? Or is it, I want to have a chat to you because I know you've 
been there, done it, written the book. Can you just give me a few pointers? Yeah, that's great advice. That's that's really interesting. And James, for you, what does the next 12 months look like personally and, and for Adzina? What have you got to look forward to? Well, I mean, how long I'll be in this room is, is a difficult, <laughs> difficult one to call. But, uh, so hopefully getting out, of the, getting out of this room. And then my wife's Australian, so we'll, we do one trip a year to Australia. So at some point when things change, that's there to look forward to. At least professionally, it really is just uh, how can we gain share and provide better service to people through the difficult times and then come out of the other end of it. And whether it's, you know, VU, whatever shaped of recovery is, or, you know, sort of bumpy or whatever it is, mm-hmm. that we're coming out of it stronger than that we entered. And, and also that the people that work for us are, that we're supporting through this because, you know, everyone's got different challenges about all this, whether it's from their own personal situations, what's going on with their families, et cetera. So it's really trying to have that, like helping people to have the personal growth that it's hard to do at this time as well as as everything else. Yeah, that's so important. Uh, Well, we wish you all the very best with that and and perhaps maybe DJing at some sort of festival in 12 months time. You never know. You're going to, you're probably going to have more time to hone these skills. (laughs) I'm doing my first uh, Zoom party, like not this weekend, but next weekend. I'm marginally terrified. So I, I, next time, hopefully we'll get to catch up for a beer face to face before long and you can tell me all about it. Final question, James, for any listeners out there that have, I'm sure, taken tons from, from this interview but there are lots of people out there who are going to be thinking about a career move probably maybe not immediately but those there are probably some that are what one piece of advice would you give them before they make a, a big career decision i do think i guess i'll go with one like when you're quite far down the road and you're actually like interviewing and you're doing stuff is try and find either a current or former employee of the company that you know or have a connection to and try and get a bit of a side view of it because it's you know like much like you when you're in well there's a reason why employers do reference checks and even if the you know even if you choose your referees and you're, you're in a pretty bad place if your referees say you're crap but i think also trying to do like the references on the place that you're joining and obviously like glassdoor and things like that are a great option and a resource but trying to see what you can find in your network or someone else's to get whether it's even just a customer of them or something, there's, I think there's a lot you gain from that bit of research as the job seeker yourself. And again, I, I sort of think of it like the same way that when I'm, when I'm hiring, think about the references, I try and think about the same when either I'm or other people are considering career moves. Brilliant piece of advice and a, a fantastic place to end here. James, thank you so much for your time. It's great to have you on the 40 Minute Mentor. And uh, yeah, really look forward to catching up when we can. Uh, yeah, you thanks know. Again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks. Cheers. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.